Hello, this is episode 107 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist podcast, coming to you from deep within capitalist society. I'm Andrew Kleiman. In this episode's main segment, Gabriel Donnelly and I will be interviewing Scott Homan, director of the documentary film Witness Underground, and Chad Rieger, one of the main people featured in the documentary. It's a film about a group of young people in the Jehovah's Witnesses who came together because of their shared interest in music and eventually managed to extricate themselves from the religion. Gabriel and I will be talking with Scott and Chad about their lives in the Jehovah's Witnesses and since, uh, and about cultism more generally, the Jehovah's Witnesses cult, other religious cults, political cults like QAnon and MAGA. We'll talk especially about shunning. The Jehovah's Witnesses and some other religious cults engage in shunning in a big way. So does the so-called left. And we'll talk about how to fight cultism. But first, Andrew Clark will join me to talk about the Colorado Supreme Court's ruling that Trump is disqualified from running for president because the 14th Amendment to the Constitution bars insurrectionists like him from holding office. We'll also respond to negative hot takes on the Colorado Court's ruling that have come from parts of the left, from Ben Burgess writing in Jacobin and Eric Levitz writing in New York Magazine. Please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, the website of Marxist Humanist Initiative, to listen to past episodes of this podcast series, to learn more about the issues discussed in them, to post comments, and to provide Radio Free Humanity with much-needed donations. Tis the season for giving. This podcast series is sponsored and hosted by Marxist Humanist Initiative, but the views expressed by hosts and guests are our own. They don't necessarily reflect the views or positions of MHI. Next up, Andrew Clark and I on the Colorado Supreme Court's disqualification of Trump and on the negative hot takes. With me is Andrew Clark, frequent guest on Radio Free Humanity and Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. And this is the current events segment of episode 107 of Radio Free Humanity, coming to you from deep within capitalist society. We were going to be talking about the Colorado Supreme Court decision that came down earlier this week, and we are going to talk about that. But there was a kind of uh, shocking decision or non-decision from the Supreme Court on Friday, what happened is that Jack Smith, the prosecutor in the case against Trump for trying to overturn the 2020 election, he'd asked the Supreme Court to speed things up and rule on Trump's ridiculous claim to be immune from prosecution. What happened Friday is that the Supreme Court denied that request without any explanation. Uh, So now we have to wait for an appeals court ruling and then undoubtedly for a Supreme Court ruling after that. So, Anne, is the court's denial of Smith's request a threat to the rule of law in the U.S.? And if so, how? Hello, everybody. I don't think it is because it's highly unusual for the court to take up a matter sort of out of turn and the normal procedure being to go from the district court to the court of appeals and only then to the Supreme Court. 
they were being asked to leapfrog over the Court of Appeals and go straight to the Supreme Court because everybody and his brother knows that that's where it's going ultimately and that's who it's going to decide. So it doesn't necessarily indicate anything except that they want to put it off. They don't want to help Jack Smith, that's for sure. If he could eliminate that argument from Trump's arsenal of phony legal arguments, that would speed things along. And they are not interested in helping him, I don't think. On Tuesday, the Colorado Supreme Court ruled that the 14th Amendment to the Constitution bars Trump from running for office there because of his insurrectionist activity. On Thursday in New York Magazine, Eric Levitz, who was uh, certainly left of center, criticized that decision and wrote that what ultimately matters is uh, not the true meaning of the 14th Amendment, but rather what works. And the attempt to disqualify Trump won't work. So he's unhappy with that legal argument simply because he says it won't work. He says the Supreme Court will allow Trump to run and the Colorado decision will offend the common sense intuitions of swing voters who, quote, consider Trump a reasonable choice for president, close quote. They'll be offended by what they regard as an effort to deprive them of the choice of voting for Trump and will make it more likely that they'll vote for him. Quote, if a bear breaks into your house and starts destroying the place, you have a right to scream and kick it. But that would be a bad idea. Our focus should be on actually getting the bear out of the house. What do you think of Levitt's argument? I agree that what we need to consider is not just the true meaning of the 14th Amendment, but rather what works. I think he's he's spot on there. I mean, we, we face a crisis uh, in this country. This is not an abstract matter. What matters is, like, can we stop the bear from destroying our house? The bear being Trump and MAGA and Trumpism and all of that. I think that bear analogy is spot on. But if a bear is, you know, threatening to destroy my house and me in it, okay, which is the case, I don't think it's a good idea to appeal to some swing voters who can't decide whether they're for the bear or for me. And this whole idea of of just appealing to these swing voters and winning an election, and that'll take care. The bear will leave. The bear won't start an insurrection. The bear won't, you know, stop start screaming about a stolen election. We've been there. We've done that. The focus should be on actually getting the bear out of the house. And for that, no, you don't appeal to swing voters who can't decide between whether they want you or the bear to win. You appeal to your allies. You appeal to the black masses, you appeal to the the immigrants, and you make it worth people's while. You say, we're going to have a multiracial democracy to replace this stuff. We're going to have amnesty, you know, a path to citizenship, you know, and we're going to have abortion rights and so forth and give people something to fight for, not just fight against. That's the way to get the bear out of the damn house, in my view. I agree with you on that. But there's such a defeatism in these people. They think, well, we shouldn't even try this because we'll probably lose and that'll hurt us in the long run and give uh, help to our enemies. 
And it's just like, right, why try anything in the legal field? It's pretty sure the Supreme Court will allow Trump to run because it's a win-win decision for the conservatives on the court. If Trump wins in 2024, quote, his candidacy will have proven good for the conservative movement, close quote. If he loses, quote, he will no longer be the conservative movement's problem going forward. What's your reaction to that? Again, I think he's got a very uh, short memory. Trump lost bigly in 2020. He did not go away. The only way to make sure that Trump is not the conservative movement's problem going forward is to make sure that, you know, he's he's out of politics, you know, in, in prison or, you know, in exile in Sochi or disqualified from, from running for office. This idea that he's going to lose an, an election and, and walk away from politics, where has Levitz been? Where has he been? I don't know where he's been, but he certainly missed what's going on in the country. Also on Thursday, weighing in on the Colorado uh, Supreme Court decision was our friend Ben Burgess, contributor to Jacobin, and that's where he wrote this. Uh, so he made some of the po same points as Levitz. He also put his spin on it. Uh, which is that the effort to disqualify Trump reflects, quote, liberal technocrats' deep distaste for the unpredictable messiness of democracy. Burgess continues saying, in effect, they, the liberal technocrats, think democracy needs to be saved from itself. Is there significant danger that Donald Trump will beat Biden next fall if the two men have a rematch? Yes. But according to Burgess, the answer is very simple. The Democrats can just run someone else with a more appealing platform, someone who more people will vote for than vote for Donald Trump. That is, at any rate, how democracies are supposed to work. Close quote. What is Burgess's concept of democracy? Does it include the rule of law? Seems to just consist of counting the votes and not considering anything else like insurrectionist activity, suppression of the vote, etc. And all we do is count and see who has the most votes. It doesn't take into consideration what's going on now and what's going to go on from now through the election, which could be anything from armed militias coming to the polling places and scaring away all the black people and anyone else who they think is going to vote Democratic. It's certainly no guarantee of a Democratic outcome. What's your reaction to the idea that the Democrats, quote, can just run someone else with a more appealing platform? Where has he been? The Democrats can just run someone with a more appealing platform than Trump? Uh, hello, they already do that. And I mean this literally because the Republicans have had, you know, since 2020, they have literally had no platform. And I'll make sure that we put a link to their website where they say we're not going to have a platform because what we actually want is to do whatever the hell Trump wants. So they're not running on anything other than Trump should be able to exercise his will and get what he wants whenever. OK, it's pure authoritarianism. Nothing is democratic if it leads to the end of democracy, end of story. So to me, it's, it's just extremely simple. 
I, I, I just think Burgess is living in a, in a different world. Our recent editorial, What Can Stop Trumpism, is based on an article of yours with the same title, which was discussed in a recent episode of the podcast. I think it speaks to what's wrong with Burgess's line and Levitt's line, too. Both of them are accepting that Trump is above the law when they say the only way to get rid of him is at the ballot box. That didn't work in 2020. We didn't get rid of him to have him pretty soundly defeated at the ballot box. And there's no reason to think that his crazy followers won't react like they did in 2020, which was to follow him to an insurrection. So Evans and Burgess don't give us any way out uh, except through elections. And we know where they've gotten us. I'd like to suggest that there is a way out. A sustained grassroots movement against Trumpism. A mass anti-fascist movement could do a world of good stopping Trumpism. Secondly, there's always the option of social revolution. It may be ironically that we're living in a moment when the preservation of liberal democracy requires social revolution. This episode's main segment will be coming up in just a few minutes, but first, a word from our sponsoring organization, Marxist Humanist Initiative. Uh, here is the organizational secretary of MHI, Andrew Clard, talking about who we are. This is Anja Clard from Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI. MHI aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. Today, Amidst many wars, climate crises, economic, social, and political crises, is a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we're faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing in all-out authoritarianism, extinguishing our right even to carry on such discussions. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism and not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organizations and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. 
Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guarded by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website and podcast to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as to espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as a way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Our collective is working to create an organization so formally rooted in its philosophy that it will not succumb to diversions that may arise from personal agendas and that will be capable of developing and concretizing the philosophy over the long haul, regardless of who its members may be. It is no simple matter to create a democratic organization that is at the same time effective and able to resist efforts to divert it from its goals. We are aware that Marx never achieved an organization based on his philosophy and that Donevskaya's organization disintegrated following her death. But we have made progress in this matter with our principles and bylaws and by recognizing that Marxist humanism cannot be carried on by chance or by individuals alone. An organization is needed in order to test and prove ideas. We invite all of you to join us in this discussion and our initiative. That was Andrew Clard, the Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization that sponsors this podcast series, talking about who we are. Next up, the episode's main segment, co-hosting with me is stalwart Gabriel Donnelly, and we're speaking with one of the stars and the director of Witness Underground. The director is Scott Homan. Uh, regular listeners may recall I had a short interview with him a couple of episodes ago. And also we have one of the stars of the documentary, Chad Rieger. And we're recording this discussion. Uh, on December 11, 2023. So welcome again to Gabriel. Welcome again to, to Scott. And welcome for the first time to Chad. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah. Thanks for having me back on, Andrew. So let me start the conversation with asking, why did you decide to make this movie? And who is your main intended audience? Was this for people who have left the Jehovah's Witnesses and or other cults or people still in them who might be dissatisfied in some way but haven't acted on that yet? Or, or were you aiming at informing and educating the general public about how the Jehovah's Witnesses operate and what life in the church is like? Thank you. Yeah, so this, I'm Scott Homan. I'm the director of the film. That's a great question. And it was a, it's a question that we needed to think a lot about from early on. And the general answer is the general public. The numbers of the population in Europe and North America are something like one in a thousand people are or were part of this religion that in question that we were talking about. And to try to reach out to one out of a thousand 
who's left, or maybe one out of a thousand who might still be in. There's a much greater 999 that that would be a might. Our goals were really to expose something really heavy and important to inform society of something dangerous in their own neighborhood. And that's true all over the planet, especially in Europe and USA and Canada with this particular faith group. And that issue is shunning. So that's the main motivation, but why to do it? Because this, this group uses shunning as an emotional abuse tactic to retain their active members and to punish people that have somehow done something they don't like, broken a rule of some kind. And they have their way of framing that, but it's really an abusive tactic and it tears apart families among many other things. And we dive into and demonstrate in the film how shunning works and how it has affected this particular community of musicians and artists in this group and this insular group. Was it hard to break free from the religion? Are you still in the process? How hard has it been to transition? At this point, I'm very comfortable with where I'm at, but it was difficult. It was definitely one of the, it sounds kind of overwrought to word it like this, but it was definitely one of the most existentially traumatic experiences of my life. For about six months, I just did deep diving into various research, trying to uh, trying to plug the holes in the sinking ship, so to speak, of my faith. And then when I wasn't doing that, I was, you know, times just catatonic because it was just everything that I had kind of focused on and my entire philosophical orientation was unraveling and I just didn't know what to do with that. And again, with the thought crime, I had no one to talk to. I mean, I had a locked file on my laptop that included my research because I was afraid that my wife at the time through it. And she never would have done that. She's a, a very respectful of people's privacy, always has been and would never do that. But I was just so paranoid and alone and it sucked. It was it was truly awful. And that's one of my motivations for wanting to kind of put myself out there a little more in letting people know, uh, letting those who don't know me personally, maybe I'm outside but safe person that they can talk to about that process. But also I want any of the people that, that I still love and care for very much that I haven't spoken to in years. I want them to know that, you know, those thoughts that you may be having, and we probably all have because cognitive dissonance is, you know, it's kind of pervasive. Uh, you can talk to me or us or any of the people who are associated with the film about that. And we just want to, I don't know, kind of alleviate that as much as possible because it sucked for us. I mean, I'll speak for myself. It sucked. It was really bad. It was, it was painful. I was lucky enough that I didn't have a lot of family who were still witnesses at the time. And so I kind of got them back when I left, but I did, I lost friends. I was just talking to, um, to a friend of mine last night about going to a concert of a band that we all used to love like 15, 20 years ago, listened to quite a bit. And I saw about a half a dozen people who I played in bands with, people that the 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 buddy of mine was my best friend before I got married. I we lived together and we worked together and I I saw him in the crowd before the show and I waved him down and he kind of looks for a second or and then as soon as it registers who I am, his face just goes flat and he averted gaze. And it was really rough. And I felt kind of like I told a friend of mine who had never been associated with the witnesses that I went to the show with about it. And she was really supportive because you know because she's pretty empathetic but a lot of people just i don't know that a lot of people have that experience like chosen family just angry at you because you 
as Eric Alvindahl from the movie would say, you disagree on ancient literature. So it's tough. So, so one of the main problems was was just coping with the the shunning. Scott, did you have a similar experience? I did. I think more of my issues after leaving were disconnection with personal immediate family more so than than friends. Partially because I had chosen friends in the religion based on common interest and free thinking, which is rare, very, quite rare, and that included people like Chad and Eric in the movie, because we knew each other in the religion where the film takes place. And that's why I originally reached out to them and made the movie because we, we knew each other and could trust each other. Um, I wanted to make it with them and celebrate their art and their story because I knew their story and it was very similar and parallel to mine. So the people that I was friends with in the religion, the vast majority of them eventually left. But yes, as time goes on, I mean, those aren't super close relationships. I mean, Chad and Eric, for example, were part of a community for the better part of their teenage years and early 20s, mid 20s. Whereas I was just, I popped into that city. You know, there were, there were like one group of friends that I was like, just getting to know before I moved on, but you know, for much closer bonds. So I was sort of in this phase of issues were more with immediate family to, to put it short, having, getting cut off from my older brother, younger brother, little brother, parents and grandparents. Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, I think a lot of people have had the experience of members of your family being very angry with you, disowning you, having nothing to do with you, not being, you know, seen with you. That That's a whole nother level. I think that uh, is nothing that I've ever experienced that I wouldn't know, you know, what to do or if I could do it, right? It also sounds like that not just the act of leaving is very stressful and, and painful, but it sounds to me like everyday life is is one of incredible tension and worry about stepping on a sort of intellectual or rhetorical landmine. Is Would that be an accurate description? Yeah, but you learn the dance. I mean, when you're when you're in a group and um, you have been, you know, like myself growing up when my social skills were, were being developed in those early years, like you, you learn how to do that dance. And so it becomes kind of a background process at a certain point. I mean, yes, there's, there's a ton of tension, but you don't, it's not front of mind because you're used to it and you're used to the, the, um, the code and the, and the, and the actions that are required of you in order to, you know, get basic, reciprocation from your relationships. I wanted to ask, has the church, the official church in any way commented on or responded to the movie since it's come out or have any other, you know, individual members of the church or other former members beyond the ones we see in the movie? As far as former members, yes, there's been, I mean, the film's just now getting its legs and starting to be released. And we did a big Kickstarter to accelerate that and get it out into the world, common streaming platforms. So it hasn't gotten wide viewing. So there's not a ton of responses yet. I'm almost certain that someone at the world headquarters knows that the movie exists. And maybe there's someone's job to even go watch these movies to find out if they think it's worth litigating against because it's that that's what they do. I don't think that they've successfully litigated any movie or even tried. They're more of a litigation powerhouse when it comes to burying news about child sex abuse scandals, which is like 15 right now in Pennsylvania going on. There's like a class action and like, child rape account 15 you mean 15 different suits 15 different rapists one of them killed himself when he was being apprehended by the police in his front yard all within the state of pennsylvania yeah all within this year so the response from 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 ex-members has been basically positive to glowing yeah exactly oh great that's that's wonderful yeah it feels great yeah one of the things that having 
real hard time getting my head around is how the Jehovah's Witnesses are able to perpetuate themselves, you know, keep their numbers up. Yes, in a certain sense, there's a good deal of isolation from the broader community, but it's nothing comparable to, for instance, the isolation of most of the Hasidic sects that I know from, you know, upstate New York and stuff. Okay, so witnesses are supposed to reject popular music and popular culture and the outside world, but in contrast to most Hasidim in the U.S., they aren't proficient in English. You know, you guys certainly are. They dress very differently from the general population. They get much less secular education than witnesses get, even though told the few witnesses relatively go to college. I see them live in their own closed communities, typically, and have very little contact with the general population because they don't meet them by proselytizing. Jehovah's Witnesses proselytize the Hasidim. Most of them don't do anything like that. They've got their own schools and so forth. So given that fact and given the fact that the Hasidim have super large families typically, it's easy to see how they manage to keep their numbers up. Current members remain in largely because they just are not equipped to live life on the outside. And the high birth rate creates a steady supply of new members. But yeah, I understand their Jehovah's Witnesses want to isolate from the broader society, but they don't do it to that extent, and their birth rate isn't super high. How do they manage to keep their numbers up, especially because you're talking about all these people you know who left, and that seems to be a big phenomenon. There was a research, Pew Research thing that came out a couple of years ago that talked about how Jehovah's Witnesses have among the lowest retention rates. And so it's, it's, I think it's just like a, a, you know, an aggregate numbers game that they're proselytizing. I guess I think the number was 38% retention rate. But my feeling based on um, my experience and, and a bit of evidence that I've seen is that it's the proselytizing. And I, I know that witnesses are, are encouraged to kind of key in on folks who you know, who may be down on their luck or they're just kind of lost and twisting in the wind, don't really, you know, kind of aimless as far as hope or the meaning of life. And all of their, their uh, literature is, is like, what is the meaning of life? And can you live forever? And, and it, it, it's very much geared toward people who are wanting to know, but not necessarily possess the, the tools to kind of look with a critical eye and, and find these things. And, and those, those people are just kind of ripe for the picking. I do know from experience with people who are affiliated with the Mormons that the Mormons have that sort of thing too, where they will kind of key in on on people who maybe have less education or less critical thinking and kind of zero in on, on them and love bomb them and offer them a community where someone is lacking community because everyone's looking for that. So they keep their numbers up enough to cover for all the people who leave they bring them in uh, through a lot of proselytizing. So one thing to add to that, like they, in the 80s, like 75, they lost like half their number because they predicted that was the end of the world. And then, of course, we're still here. So a lot of people left and were disillusioned by that. And then in the 80s was when my family started getting involved in it when I was young. And during that time period, they were also really engaged in foreign, they were trying to spread the word in other countries. And they made a huge push to send lots of missionaries out to many countries, especially poor, uneducated, lesser educated places. 
in poor places with less options for people. And their big sell, like Chad says, a bit manipulative, like, oh, someone you love died. They, you're going to see them. We have immortality. We're the only ones. And we have the only path to get there. Or yeah, you're down your luck. You're trying to figure out the existential meaning of life. And they have an answer for everything, even if it's a ridiculous answer. Like They have an answer and they're very resolute and their confidence is what they kind of sell, even if they're confident in something ridiculous. It's the simplicity and the overwhelming positivity of like, it's, it's an easy answer. All you got to do is read this and study with us. Like, the, you know. Yeah. I'm in Panama right now. And here, the local average person who has nothing to do with this religion is like, oh, you're making a movie about that? Oh, I had a friend. Let me tell you why they do their proselytizing. It's not to get new members. You don't get new people that way. You do it so that you feel like you're being punished and persecuted by the average person because they shut their door on you or said, get off my property, or they pulled a gun, or they said, stop bothering me on a Saturday. You're fucking nuts or something, you know, like whatever that is, then you go back like, oh my God, that's uncomfortable. I don't, what am I doing? Ruining this person Saturday and I don't want to be here. You know, the average witness is like conscious of that. So this is another way of keeping people isolated. The general community is you go and you try to love them and reach out to them and they totally rebuff you and see you made the right decision by withdrawing from them in the first place. And that reinforces your commitment to the religion and your isolation from the broader society. Yeah, exactly. And to, so to have someone walk up to me in Panama and be like, this is how it really works. I'm like, how do you know any of that? Oh, we all talk. The usage of the persecution complex is one of those things that kind of brings this specific movie kind of like it broadens it up because I that usage of um, persecution, manufactured persecution within in group dynamics is used everywhere. It's used, uh, you know, it's used by the the alt right. It's used by just any group of people that wants to kind of bolster up their righteousness all you have to do is kind of go. i mean even that what's a westboro baptist church that's kind of their bread and butter you know they sling shit and then someone slings it back and they go look we're being persecuted in the name of the no you're not <laughs> i mean you're being an asshole and you're getting the logical repercussions of that particular thing but i think that persecute usage of the persecution complex is a very common mechanic within these these cult-like groups Sounds like a certain former president of the United States and his cult, you know, the persecution and they're out to get me and this and that, and it has nothing to do with his behavior and their behavior. Oh, absolutely. They stole the election. Yeah, they stole it. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's being used quite a bit within that group. You know, the crazy wild assertions or rather, yeah, the very bold assertions with very little evidence. And then when you try to reason, that reasoning looks like an attack because you identify with your ideas emotionally. And it just it's a it's a self-serving feedback loop. And I see it all the time with those groups in in particular, but just basically any kind of group of people that has decided this is what they're going to believe. And it's a very irrational and very emotional belief foundation. I think that moves us into the topic of belief and, and truth and attitudes to truth, right? Because there's this very striking moment in the film. It's the discussion of a Jehovah's Witness publication that, you know, very clearly deliberately distorts a statement from Darwin to support creationist arguments. In the real quotation, Darwin was explaining the evolution of the eye, the evolution of eyesight, but his statement is deliberately truncated to make it seem that he was arguing that the eye could not have evolved. And in the film, Ryan remarks, and I'll quote this directly, quote, this is dishonest, not simply a mistake. 
The thing that bothered me so much wasn't that they were wrong about creation, but that they lied their asses off to cover it up, unquote. And, and there are other similar instances throughout the film where people come to realize that Jehovah's Witnesses' doctrine regarding the Garden of Eden and Noah's Ark and so on contradicts key facts. Why does the leadership of the church promulgate falsehoods that it knows to be false? What is its attitude to truth? There's a memoir from a former member of the governing body, I believe his name is Ray Franz. He wrote a book called Captives of a Concept. And yeah. his thesis is basically that he believes that the witnesses in general and the governing body are sincere. And so uh, they, they, they just, he felt that they were wrong. And when you are looking, when your critical thought is hamstrung by what you need to believe, as opposed to just a pure search for truth, you're not necessarily going to dig any deeper than finding the oh well that 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 verifies that confirms my bias and you know it's confirmation bias along with you know along with the policing and whatnot is is one of the fundamental tenets of these these cult-like um uh, groups yeah but it doesn't seem to work very well it seems to blow up in their face a lot i mean they make definite prediction that the armageddon's going to come 1975 or whatever and it doesn't and what half the membership leaves and we see in your film is several people were just shocked when they discovered that church doctrine about matters of science and history isn't literally correct so the leadership only inculcates one attitude to truth, it seems to me, and somehow it keeps the membership, the rank and file, from discovering that the leader's own attitude to truth is something quite different. How does it manage to do that? Well, I mean, it's it's cognitive dissonance, and these groups they are masterful at usage, managing that kind of cognitive dissonance, because if I let a slip go few sentences ago where I accidentally referred to the the Jehovah's Witnesses as the truth with a little, you know, little trademark thing, you know, in the corner, because that's how we were encouraged to call it. We were in the truth. And you'll notice that there haven't been a whole lot of predictions since 1975. You know, even even people who are determined to maintain their confirm their biases will learn from that kind of mistake. But if somebody says something that they don't like, they can kind of scrub the history of what is said, or they can just throw their hands up and say, that person wasn't representing Jehovah. We found out later. I referenced Ray, Raymond Franz, and that's what they did. They threw him under the bus. So basically, any dogma that he was responsible for helping them mine, they now have a footnote, you know, they have a, have a caveat. Well, he was wrong anyway, or like, you know, there's this, this fundamental current through it uh, that we are led by Jehovah, but we are organized by sinful, fallible humans. And, and that is a easy get out of jail free card anytime they, you know, they pull into the wrong cul-de-sac because they can just kind of, you know, wash their hands and say, the, the light's getting brighter, the truth is getting more distinct, or they can just say that this person must not have had Jehovah's Holy Spirit because that person led us astray, not the faithful and discreet slave. In order to study for all the meetings and do all the things that you needed to do to be a, 
a strong, spiritually strong member of the congregation, it's just an onslaught of their propaganda. And so like finding, you know, looking up all the quotes and then getting, you know, writing a letter to the the watchtower as a, one of the, the just James Zimmerman in the, in the movie, it gets lost in the noise. I think I saw it happen quite a bit. People would have questions and then, you know, next week we have a whole new thing with a whole new bunch of quotes and, and yeah, it just gets kind of lost in the juggernaut. Which to bring back another connection to everyone's favorite president we were mentioning earlier, he did something similar. Like he said something crazy this morning on the news and international news picked it up and it's global news now. The president of the United States said this insane thing. Everyone's like, oh my God, like that's insane that you just said that. And then the cycle just continues. Like we didn't even get to an answer from the first crazy thing. And we did that for four years, right? Like that was yeah. so exhausting. And it's the same thing in this religion. It's like they put out a whole other book about that topic. We didn't even get to, there's a lot of stuff that I have questions about the first book. Can we talk about that? <laughs> yeah. He may have gotten this strategy from Steve Bannon. I mean, Steve Bannon is the one who said, you know, the way, basically the way to, you know, control the narrative is to flood the zone with shit. And they've been practicing that. So, okay, get that they, they, they flood the zone with shit. And then, at some level, it seems a lot of the rank and file members are in on it. The documentary discusses the witnesses' practice of disfellowship or shunning those who leave. One especially heart-wrenching part of the film is about a former member who was actively shunned when he tried to mourn the loss of his brother, who had suddenly dropped dead at a young age. Apparently, the rank and file who shun their former friends and even members of their immediate families truly believe that shunning is a way to express their love. Can you speak more to this? And if shunning is an expression of love, what kind of love is this? On some level, to steel man the Jehovah's Witnesses, or to just use their, their way of thinking or ideology on this topic, the practice of shunning would be a kind of maybe a tough love that um, they're going to punish this person with this emotional abuse. They wouldn't use that word, but they're going to punish this person and put them in solitary confinement so that they realize the weight of their sin or the weight of their breaking of the rules and how that reflects on the true God of the universe, especially in such a tumultuous time at the end of the world. So they, they really just, they want to pressure you into coming back. That's why they're doing it. And some people do. It's probably a low percentage, but there's, I know people who have gone when I was in it, who had left or got out and then, you know, came crawling back. And the way you have to like submit to the authority of those above you is really humiliating and demeaning. And the people that I've seen go back that when I was still in, wow, they were changed humans. They were like traumatized, broken creatures. That's how I saw them. Anyways, like they I love big brother, their existence. Yeah. They love big brother now. Yeah. I mean, I'm very interested in shunning as a continual victim of, of, of shunning. You know, we think of Jehovah's Witnesses or what are called cults, which are small, kind of isolated groups. But shunning is also common among groups that don't self-isolate and that do permit a diversity of views. I'm thinking of like the mainstream left in the United States and, and elsewhere. I and others in Marxist Humanist Initiative have long been shunned by, by the mainstream left. There's a video with uh, Rick Wolf shunning me at some panel a couple of years ago, Boots Riley, myself, and Rick Wolf, and he could see the shunning take place there. Anyway, the mainstream left, they pride themselves on having a big tent approach, very different from this kind of isolated community thing. 
they keep us out of their publications and their conference panels and they don't discuss anything with us. They don't associate with us. They urge people to steer clear of us and so on. You know, it's shunning. So they, they operate a big tent cult. They're okay with diversity, okay, but not with internal opposition and dissent. That's where they draw the line. So it seems to me that shunning isn't only, it's not really an act of love, but it's also not really necessarily meant to keep a group cohesive or to prevent members of the group from encountering variety of views. It seems to me that what is going on with the shunning, it's a method of domination and control. The leaders of the group, you know, engage in shunning and have other people shun in order to quash internal opposition and thereby perpetuate their control over the group. You guys are experts on shunning, so I would like to know what you think about this this kind of hypothesis. Yeah, I was going to interject and say it's really a form of power and control. So I think you nailed it, but maybe Chad has something nuanced. Uh, Well, Andrew, what you were talking about, it reminded me of Noam Chomsky quote where he says, the trick in, in modern politics is to only allow a narrow band of acceptable political discussion, but encourage vigorous debate within that band. So it's a vigorous debate within a narrow, acceptable field. did want to say, getting back to the, the, the witness version of shunning, it's cruel. It's cruel to the person who receives it, and it's cruel to the people who have to dole it out in order to be, quote-unquote, good witnesses. Uh, I was talking to a friend last night, and she said that she did not want to have to be in the situation of of shunning her own child because you can see the heartbreak in their faces of the people who have who feel compelled to do that sort of thing. It's cruel. Some people, like Andrew, in your situation, it seems like it's a bit of front to that person, and so they feel persecuted. So shunning you in that way helps them to feel righteous in their beliefs. You know, that just kind of seems like the social mechanic for this scenario. But in that one, it feels very much like that. Whereas with the witnesses, it's um, they feel like they have to. And they genuinely feel like it's righteous to use the relational aggression, the tough love to help you see what you were missing, to help you yearn to get back into in-group. Chad, you just brought us to kind of a really heavy place, which is that People are alone and they have reasons they go to these places. And the cult problem feels like it's getting more and more and more severe. Cultish religious groups seem to be more visual. And then political cults like QAnon and MAGA also seem to be on the rise. What's your advice about how best to combat this? My philosophy is that everybody is, it seems like everyone's trying to browbeat each other with their version of what's right and what's true. And, you know, the rightness of your facts and whatnot will prevail. For me, it's all about the method. You can look at it as like high-roading somebody or killing them with kindness. But honestly, it's like the person that you're differing with is another person just like you and finding a way to, on whatever small level, connect with them and then helping them to see that connection and see that we are vastly more similar than then we are different is is what i use personally i joke that you can take the boy out of the evangelical millennial cult but you can't take the evangelical millennial cult out of the boy in a lot of ways i feel like my ministry has continued and it's it's just gotten more thoughtful and less manipulative hopefully <laughs> it's all about making those connections and because of the the kind of uh, boot camp of critical thinking that my deconversion was 
one of the first things I try to think about when somebody's giving me new information, new perspective is why do you need me to believe this? You can say your thing and somebody who's confident in their beliefs will just state those beliefs and they're fine with you not being right. They're, they're confident enough that if you are a truth-seeking, earnest person, you'll see the rightness. Somebody who's not, at least in my view, that kind of smacks of people who, uh, when they when they browbeat you or they're really aggressive, I can't help but think, man, you are really, really trying to keep this foundation. You're really trying to keep this bit going. The takeaway for me is to meet people where they are, try to find connections, identify with people as much as you can, treat them like a neighbor down the street that you've known for 20 years. Sounds a little tree huggy, but just find the moments of, of connection and compassion and then, then go from there because browbeating each other with what we think is right, even if we have all the facts in the world, facts don't matter anymore, as we know. And I'm convinced the only thing that's going to be remotely successful is an appeal to connection. Right. I think you're you're referring to converting people or deprogramming them or doing something to change individuals' outlook and therefore behavior and so forth. Obviously, what you're talking about is very labor intensive, takes a very long time, and it's, you know, one person at a time. And there's got to be some way of combating these people and these cults now. Just can't imagine that the only thing that we can do is talk one-on-one -on -one with people and and try to deprogram them or convert them or whatever. You know that might be good, but there's this phenomenon. It seems to be on the rise. It, it seems to have invaded politics recent years more and more. And while they still exist, we mean you know, and we haven't yet deprogrammed or converted or talked down or whatever every individual. What, what can we do in the meantime? That's I guess where my thinking is at here. Can we meet people before they're sucked into something like the witnesses and find lost people who might get hoovered up into something like this and form connections there? And then we have to we don't have to do the deprogramming first, right? I mean, that's definitely one of my, I hesitate to use the word strategy and I hesitate to, to say like trying to deprogram or convert uh, or deconvert anyone because I'm convinced that the strength of a lot of these more dangerous and toxic mentalities and, and ideologies is supported by the pushback. It's built into the model. And so if I'm talking to somebody and they're really emphatic about their perspective and my personal philosophy is I'm not going to fight for the floor because I can I can back up my quote unquote chops all day. Like I know what I believe. I'm very confident in what I believe. And so if somebody needs for me to believe a thing, I just try to ask as kindly as possible, ask the questions that are going to initiate their own critical thinking. I want to maybe comment on, on some of how this is working. I feel like what's happening in politics with the rise of mega QAnon and other dialogue is really thin. And it feels like it's a result of a culture that no longer reads, doesn't care about nuance, is inundated with short form media and reads the title of articles more than the actual content of them. I came across a book by Dave Rainey and it's How to Change a Mind, I believe is the title. One of the things I figured out, which is the kind of the crux and climax of the book. And so I'm highlighting the book so I can say this, I think. They were going door to door in political canvassing. Um, so not so different from Jehovah's Witnesses, but they're doing the one-on-one. -on -one. So you're saying like, that's inefficient. But the method they found out was really interesting. They were like, hey, we are curious about what topics interest you in the political world or like, what about this topic? Okay, give us a scale of one to 10, how strongly you care about this topic. 
Okay, great. And then why? Why do you care about that? And then, then you ask at the end, like, well, how important is that issue to you personally today? Like, are you going to vote because of that one issue? Almost every time they said the statistics were crazy, probably like a four out of 10 on that. Like they were a nine out of 10 at the beginning. And now they're a four out of 10. Like, why is that not so big of an issue? Well, I just realized like after telling you about why I care so much about it was because something my dad said to me when I was seven years old. And that's not actually like me. And this is like, you know, someone who's in their fifties or sixties having a really strong held belief because it's tribalism and familial and part of their life. Yeah. That's part of my tribe. My team, my team, my political team says that. So I'm for it. I, I wish I were so sanguine and optimistic about it because we're facing now is a situation where this individual issues and, and so forth matter less and what team you're on is mattering more. And it's the fancy name for that is polarization. So you might be able to influence somebody in terms of their strength of feeling regarding a particular issue, but you know that's becoming less important. Pulling somebody away from their allegiance to their team seems to be a, a much harder thing, and it goes into very fundamental issues of identity. And I don't have any solutions here. I don't pretend to have any solutions. Uh, all I'm saying is I'm not as optimistic as you are about this. I don't know. What do you, what do you think, Gabriel? Yeah, Andrew, I tend to agree with you, but I still think, at least in the level of cults, Getting out and having individual conversations, especially with really vulnerable people, is something yeah. that everyone should be thinking about more because who's knocking on their door? It's the witnesses. It's it's their MAGA neighbor. It's whoever. There are people who fall through the cracks in society, and it seems to be happening a lot more often nowadays. And those are the people who end up on a compound or in a cult or voting for Trump. And so it's a start, but I tend to agree with you, Andrew, that it's nowhere near enough, nowhere near enough. I'm not sure what a solution is either. And I don't think a solution is talking to people one-on-one, -on -one, but I feel like having a channel, being a voice that people can find and creating content of value that can get them thinking and being, being available, keeping it available, more of that will probably emerge over time. But is it going to rise above the noise? Maybe Marxists and humanists will find it and people that are curious about the topics will find it. And with my podcast, people that are curious about cult and cult mind control might be curious about listening in. I have no idea what another solution is, but I mean, you're fighting against mudslinging politics with billion dollars behind them funded by tax exempt oil companies. Like, I don't know how to fight against that machine. I feel like the way to be the David in that David and Goliath scenario is to, um, it's kind of be mindful of, of, of these kind of tactics. Scott, when you were talking, I was thinking about how a, the irony of like the fact that you and I were instructed in using those tactics in our door-to-door -door ministry to ask questions to, because it helps personalize the content and bring somebody into it. And that, that would be when we would cherry pick a specific thing and then drill down on that with an agenda. But these tactics without that kind of a cynical agenda, it can be effective because people do want to share their experiences and that's going to open them up more to accepting ideas. I think maybe a larger thing we can be doing instead of having conversations is making a stand for dignity and ethics in discussion so that when people are being recruited, what is acceptable, we can lay down the ground roads and say, you cannot accept leadership that's trying to recruit you that doesn't uphold truth. You cannot accept not being allowed to discuss amongst yourself truth. And if we have a battle for truth, 
on all rank and file levels, that can help in a lot of places. I mean, I've been on the show a lot to talk about unions. There are unions that are run like that. You can't compare notes with somebody in another local. You know, if we made that a standard on a larger fight instead of individual conversations, that's a fight for dignity. Yeah, I fully, fully support that and agree with that. It's, it's a, I always think it's compelling when, when somebody's like just fighting for the floor in, in an echo chamber or, or in, in, in a debate, people are, are only listening for what's germane to their retort. They're only listening for the, the thing that they can use to negate you or to reinforce their perspective. Whereas if you're, if you're saying things about commonality and dignity, that's irrefutable. It starts the topic with empathy as opposed to jumping straight to the adversary. Adversarial conversations tend to reinforce you know, the, the, the tribalism. Our brains are not wired for academic uh, debate and discourse. They are, they are wired for confirmation bias. I just wanted to make a, one final comment about what I most enjoyed about the film you know, that really resonated with me. I don't remember, you know, the name of the person who said it, you know, upon leaving the Jehovah's Witnesses, what they felt was this immense lifting off of a burden. And I believe the phrase that they used was absolute possibility. And I, th I thought about that. I said, yeah, that, that's what, what I'm all about. That's what, you know, Marxist humanism is about. Uh, this absolute possibility, what human beings are not now, you know, but can be individually, you know, and, and as a species. And people often like deride the idea of absolutes, you know, because of like absolutist religion and, you know, all kinds of negative connotations about absolute. But when you think about absolute as possibilities becoming, you know, the, the horizon possible, but not yet here, not constrained, that, that really struck me. I just wanted to say that. Andrew, that exact same phrase and moment also leapt right out to me too and was very moving. I was moved. I thought the whole through line, which we've barely touched on in this discussion of music, of coming together, engaging in an act of creation with your peers, being a way out of something so restrictive on individual connection and individual creativity. I thought that was, it was really moving to see. And so I, I thank you guys for coming on and for, for making the film. Thanks for the pleasure. Yeah, I also really love that particular quote and the finish of the film, just to give a little, it's something I haven't seen in other films on the topic where, well, what happened to these people after they had this absolute possibility and absolute freedom? What did they do with that? Because you can, you can get stuck as someone who's ostracized or lost something and just live there and experience that, live stuck in the past, missing things. Or someone who's like takes that and they're like, I'm in a new place with an opportunity. I'm gonna make the most of this. Now I'm like I can do something with this new place. And like it's the exact same situation exists, but it's a mind shift. This has been episode 107 of Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist Humanist Podcast from deep within capitalist society. Thanks for listening. Please visit MHI's website, MarxistHumanistInitiative.org, to listen to other episodes, to learn more about the issues we discuss, post comments, and donate to this podcast series. Goodbye.